The title of today's message is this, The Forgiven Love God Much. The Forgiven Love God Much. And the thesis is those who understand the depths of God's forgiveness will love much. Those who understand the depths of God's forgiveness will love much. So please turn to Luke chapter 7. It's the text that we already read um, in Scripture reading. Starting in verse 36, we'll go all the way to verse 50. And let me pray. Lord, thank you for the privilege and honor it is to open up your holy word. It is true. It's living and active. And this story that we're going to read actually took place. These are real people. And your son is the Holy Son of God. And I pray that the truth of what you want to communicate through this text would go forth in such a way that we as believers would be stimulated to a greater love for you, that we would have a greater understanding of your forgiveness, and then live in light of that. Bless this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Look at verse, let's start in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him, Jesus, to eat with him. Stop right there. We need to get a little bit of context. If you go back into Luke chapter 7, we will see that Jesus has been ministering in Judea. This is early on in his ministry. It's right at the beginning. And he's doing amazing works. We see uh, in verses 1 through 10 that Jesus heals the centurion's centurion's servant. And this centurion demonstrates great faith because he didn't ask Jesus to come. He said, if you just give the word, then my servant will be healed. And Jesus is moved. He says, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And coming off of that miracle, we have the raising of the widow's son. This is the first person that Jesus raises from the dead. And look at the response that takes place in verse 16. It says, fear seized them, seized them all. And they glorify God saying, a great prophet has risen among us and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. The next section right here, Starting in verse 18, we have this dialogue that happens between John the Baptist and his disciples, and John's desire to find out if this person, this man, Jesus, if he was truly the Messiah. So John the Baptist sends his disciples to go find out if this, if this is truly the Christ. And what's important about this section of Scripture is that Matthew... In chapter 11, he covers this almost word for word. The exact same dialogue basically takes place in Matthew chapter 11. But what's fascinating is the text that we're going to look at today, nobody else covers, only Luke does. J.C. Ryle picks up on this and and he profoundly says that he believes that this woman in our story came in contact with Jesus Christ when he was preaching that famous section 
which comes right after the dialogue with John the Baptist and his disciples in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, where Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and I will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And just like J.C. Ryle, I believe that this woman in the text that we're going to look at today has already been converted, that she has already come in contact with Jesus Christ. Most likely, she probably heard that speech that Jesus gave. And so that's the context in which we look today. It says in uh, verse 22, Jesus' response to the, to the disciples of John, and John is in prison at this point, according to Matthew 11. Jesus says, tell John this, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the good news preached to them. What's going on here? Jesus is becoming very, very well known. He's becoming famous in Israel. And so that's why I believe Simon has taken interest in him, and that's why Simon invites him to his house for dinner. Now, Simon is a Pharisee, and a Pharisee was a religious, or was a member of the Jewish religious sect. They were the religious leaders in Israel. They were known for a strict and formal observance of rites and ceremonies and traditions of the elders. They were separatists. They did not mingle with the lowly. They were powerful. They were proud. They were wealthy rulers of the Jews. They possessed political power over the Jewish people, and they were respected by the religious, envied by the poor, and feared by the outcasts. Simon was a Pharisee, and that's very important to understand. And Jesus goes to the Pharisee's house to eat, to dine. Now, Jesus will go if he's invited. If you look at, uh, throughout the book of Luke, Jesus is constantly being invited to come and eat, and he never turns anybody down. And he goes, and I think the reason why Simon has invited Jesus specifically is one, curiosity, and two, concern. He's curious, but he's also concerned. Why is he concerned? Because the multitudes were calling Christ a great prophet. And Jesus goes and meets with this man, Simon, the Pharisee. As Jesus enters the Pharisee's house, something very dire takes place. The Pharisee does not give Jesus a proper welcoming. Whenever you had a guest at your house, you always had a servant or yourself to wash the feet of the guest that comes in. It was a very dry and desolate area, Israel very dirty. The streets were made of dirt, and people wore sandals. And when you came into someone's home, you would have your feet washed. Not only were your feet to be washed, you were also given a kiss of greeting. That's how you welcomed somebody into your home. That was just common courtesy. 
But Simon does not do that with Jesus. He doesn't give him a proper welcoming. Now, we can learn something from this with Jesus entering into the Pharisee's house. Not only does Jesus eat with Pharisees, but he eats with publicans and sinners and prostitutes. He basically will spend time with anybody and everybody that would spend time with him. And there's something profound about sharing a meal with people. So when you are offered the opportunity to come to someone's house, it's a great opportunity to get to know them. It's a great opportunity to fellowship with them. And it's a great opportunity to minister to those folks. And Jesus never turned people down when they invited him. In fact, we even have in Luke chapter 19, we have Jesus actually invited himself over to Zacchaeus's house. He's like, Zach, I'm coming over to your house today, for I'm going to your house today. And Jesus goes. Now, I had a friend a few years ago. He came up to me and he said, I want to have a Super Bowl party. I said, yes, I want to go. I love football and I love food. But here's what he said, I want, I want to have a Super Bowl party, but I want it at your house. So I'm excited about this party, and then I find out he's going to actually have it at my house. So that's kind of what Jesus does with Zach here. Jesus goes to the Pharisee's house. Continue on. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Now I love this. The way that you ate back in Palestine, was that you would recline. I think this is a good way to, to approach eating. Now the tables were low to the ground, often they were a U-shape, and you would have reclining uh, recliners, if you will, around the outer part of the table. And when you would approach the table, you would come and you would lay down on the recliner, and your head and hands would be close to the table and the food, and your feet would be out and away. And it was U-shaped usually so that the hosts or the servants could come into the, the eating area and then serve. And that's what's going on. Jesus reclines at a table. Now, honey, at Thanksgiving, I think we should try this. I think it would be very fitting. One of the reasons is you can eat your fill and then you don't have to get up to go somewhere to take a nap. You just put your head down right where you're at and you can take a nap right there on the spot. But that's how they would enjoy a meal. They would recline. Look at verse 7. And Luke says this, and behold. This is important. Luke is trying to capture our attention right now. He's, he's saying to you and I, listen, you've got to see what takes place here. This is so important. Behold, there was a woman of the city who was a sinner. A woman of the city who was a sinner. Now, this statement, woman of the city, is, is profound. It basically is letting us know that this woman was publicly well-known in the city. And she was known for her sin, therefore she's called a sinner. She was wicked, she was a rep reprobate. She had a sinful lifestyle that was known. Most biblical scholars believe that this woman was a prostitute, for her sin was well-known. Charles Spurgeon says this, grace is here glorified in its object, for she was a sinner. 
A sinner not in the flippant, unmeaning, everyday sense of the term, but a sinner in the blacker, filthier, and more obnoxious sense. She had forsaken the guide of her youth and forgotten the covenant of her God. She had sinned against the laws of purity and had made herself as a defiled thing. She was one of the scarlet sinners that we read of in Scripture, for she sinned and made others to sin. Hers were offenses which provoked the Lord to jealousy and stir up His wrath. Yet, oh, miracle of miracles, she was an object of distinguishing grace, ordained unto eternal life. Why was this? On what legal grounds was she selected? For what merit was she chosen? Was this an extraordinary and out-of-the-way instance? By no means, dear friends, for the grace of God has frequently chosen the lowest of the low and the vilest of the vile. This woman was the lowest of the low and the vilest of the vile, and her sins were known all over the city. Now, I want to highlight a couple things about grace here. So if you're taking notes, this next little section, we're going to see how the grace and love and forgiveness of God, what it produced in the heart of this woman. And this is very, very important to follow along. We will see first that grace produces a heart of gratitude. Grace produced in this woman, this sinner, a heart of gratitude. And her thankfulness, her desire to be with Jesus, to thank Him was very bold and very risky, for she entered into a Pharisee's house. Side note, it was common for uninvited guests to come into the home of somebody that was famous to hear a rabbi speak. These homes had big courtyards in them, and often people would come in and sit around the edges of the courtyard, and they would listen in to a teacher or a rabbi speak. And that's what's going on. She enters in, but this is risky because she's a known sinner. And when someone has been forgiven a great debt, they will take risks to go back and to thank. Understanding the depth of that debt and how awesome it is to be forgiven of that debt. She boldly approaches Jesus in this hostile environment. Hebrews 4.16 comes to mind. Let us then with confidence boldly approach the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in a time of need. Grace drew her in with great gratitude. Look at verse 37. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Now there's, there's somewhat of a spontaneity taking place here, because the word says she learned. So. The second point is that she approaches Jesus with a heart of worship. She learns that Jesus is nearby. She's at this, he's at this uh, Pharisee's house, and with spontaneity, she runs and grabs an alabaster vask of oil, uh, flask of ointment, and she comes to worship Jesus. And what is she going to do with that ointment? She's going to sacrifice it to him. This ointment was expensive. It was a perfume and she was going to sacrifice it to the Lord. No matter what it cost, she had to get to Jesus to worship Him. She had to get to her new Savior. 
The third thing that we see about grace, not only does it produce in us an incredible gratitude, a heart of worship, but we see a humility, a humble love unto Jesus. Look at verse 38. And standing behind him, at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Grace produced in her a humble love. She stands behind Jesus at his feet. I don't know that she's looking at him, but all of a sudden tears are pouring out. And this past brazen tempter now bows humbly and respectfully to her Savior. And she begins to weep and cry. And I want you to see the nature of eyes. The eyes of this woman, the eyes of Simon, and the eyes of Jesus Christ throughout this whole dialogue. It's amazing. What does she do with her eyes? She, she sees Jesus for who he really is. And she goes to him and she worships. And in the process, she starts to weep. And Luther, Martin Luther calls this heart water. She is pouring out her heart through her tears. And often tears will do that. They reveal the heart. What is taking place in this moment as she is weeping over Jesus' feet? There's two things, I believe. One, there is a brokenness over past sins. Undoubtedly, the depth of her depravity, she understood it. And at the same time as she's weeping, there's an overwhelming thankfulness for Christ's gracious forgiveness. That's what's going on here. There's a mingling of brokenness and an overwhelming thankfulness that Jesus, the Savior, the God-man, would love her and forgive her. And then it says... She wets his feet with her tears. She wets her feet with her tears, and this is a lot of tears. And then she wipes his feet with her hair. Now impulsively, she does what in those days no woman was supposed to do. One, women didn't touch men, and two, you didn't let your hair down. But nevertheless, she's in a moment here with her Savior, and she wants to give him undue or due respect. She wants to worship him. And she begins to take her hair and wash his feet with her hair and dry them with her hair. And as she's doing that, she's kissing his feet. She's kissing his feet. Isaiah 52, 7 says this, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Now listen, these feet that she is kissing is of the incarnate Son of God, who was the very one who made her, the very one who gave his life or was going to give her life for her, and the very one who has loved her. And she is kissing his feet. This is the point of this scene. God's grace had completely transformed this seductive, adulterous sinner and made her into a new, holy, pure, clean, blood-washed child of God. She is clean, and now she's worshiping Him in holiness. She now loved Jesus greatly because He first had loved her. 1 John 4.10, in this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. He loved her first. She had already come in contact with Christ. She had already received Him as her Savior. And now she comes back in this act of worship. 
Now, the whole story shifts. There's a major contrast between this humble love of this woman to Jesus, and she understood her forgiveness. She understood who Jesus was. She saw him rightly. And now we look at Simon the Pharisee and his response to this. Look at verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, so he sees this scene with this woman doing this to Jesus, and then he says in his heart, nobody can hear this, he says it within himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. He did not see Jesus as the Son of God, nor did he even consider him to be a a prophet, as the multitudes claimed. He didn't even see Jesus as being a good man, for he let sinners touch him. And he doesn't see the woman correctly either. He doesn't see her as an image bearer, made in the image of God, nor as a sister or a daughter or even a neighbor. He looks down at Christ and this woman with contempt. He's coming from a place of pride. Simon was a self-righteous, self-consumed, prideful man. He had a righteousness of his own derived from the law. And C.S. Lewis says, gives a good definition for pride. He said, pride is ruthless, undying, unhappy focus on the self. Pride is ruthless, undying, unhappy focus on the self. And Simon was consumed with himself here. Number one, if you're taking notes concerning pride, pride produced a selfish unkindness, for he did not properly welcome Jesus into his home. He was rude. It produced an unkindness. One theologian says this, Simon the Pharisee must have invited Jesus to his house with the deliberate intent of insulting him, testing him. Simon left out all the basic rites of hospitality, which he could not have done without deliberate malicious intent. He was treating Jesus not as an honored guest, but as a much inferior person. And the woman makes up for his failures of hospitality with her actions. In this, the designation of sinner is precisely reversed. Who is the sinner? The one who refuses to welcome Jesus into the home. The Pharisee is the sinner. Profound. The second thing we learn about pride, religious pride especially, it's like throwing gasoline on pride, Religious pride, which is the worst, because you're self-sufficient in your righteousness. You don't need God. You don't need His Son. You think you're going to be able to earn your way into heaven, and that's probably the, the state that Simon was in. He had eyes that looked down on sinners. He had eyes that looked down upon this woman and now Jesus, for he had a heart of contempt towards them both. And this is the superior form of pride, where you're doing the math, and you look around, and you're doing really good, and you're much better than everybody else. And Simon looks down on Jesus and on this woman. Proverbs 6.16 says this, There are six things the Lord hates, yea, seven, that are an abomination and detestable to God. 
There are seven things that are an abomination to God that are detestable to Him. And you know what the first thing that's listed there? Haughty eyes. Eyes that look down on others. Simon was prideful. The third thing we see is that pride blinds you from seeing the truth. Pride blinds you from seeing the truth. He doesn't see Jesus rightly here. He has no understanding that this man truly is a prophet. In fact, he's the greatest prophet. He's not only a prophet, but he is the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior, the very one who created him, and he doesn't see that at all because pride is blinding, and pride makes you a fool. Pride makes you worthy of hell. And that's unfortunately what comes out in Simon and how he treats Jesus and this woman. Now, I believe there's a very real chance that Simon is in hell today. If this is his last encounter with Jesus and there's no repentance that comes about for Simon and he doesn't turn from his sins, then most likely he has been separated from God forever and ever in hell. And think about this. He had so much scriptural knowledge. How much light and understanding did he have? He probably knew the first five books of the Bible. He knew what the Messiah and who he was to be. He would know that, and yet he doesn't see Jesus rightly. And even scarier, he had this, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords in his very home, reclining at a table with him. And yet he was so far away because of his pride. How about you today? There are some in this room that have been around the Lord Jesus Christ for a long time. You know the gospel. You know the truth. You have family members that love you and care for you and pray for you. You're so close and yet so far away. And that's what pride does. Pride separates. God cannot have prideful, sinful people in his presence. And that's why he came to die. And so you have an opportunity even today, if you are sensing pride in your own heart and a hardness towards God, and you actually really do want to turn from your sins and put your faith in Christ, then you need to do it today. You need to give your life to Christ today. Pride blinds. I pray that the Word of God opens and, and helps you see Jesus for who He really is. So Jesus now, in our story, is going to do something profound. He's going to teach Simon and the rest of the people that are in the home. And He's going to do this by giving a parable. And this is such a great parable. Simple to understand yet so, so profound. Let's look at verse 40. And Jesus answering Simon, I love that. Remember, Simon didn't speak out loud, did he? He spoke in his heart. But Jesus answers him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. Verse 41, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? This might be one of the most profound parts of the, of the whole interaction that takes place here. Which one of them will love more? Now, notice Simon's smug response. 
He says, the one I suppose, the one I suppose, he doesn't say it, he knows it's the truth, and yet he's got this smug response, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus says to him, you have judged rightly. Now this is important, you have judged rightly. Has Simon judged anything rightly so far? He doesn't judge Christ properly. He has a blind understanding of who he is, and he's looked down upon and judged the woman wrongly. Yet, Jesus says, you have judged rightly as it relates to this parable. And I could just see the eyes, the pure eyes of Christ looking right through Simon, having known Simon's heart. And at the same time, now turns with those eyes of truth and purity and looks at the woman. And those same eyes of truth and purity that are righteous now look on this sinful woman with eyes of grace and love. What was it like for this woman to have the eyes of the Savior looking at her with gracious, forgiving, accepting love, staring at her intently. You can almost feel maybe Jesus taking her hand and looking at her with love, and now he's going to confront Simon. So he's looking at the woman with eyes of love and forgiveness, and he's going to confront Simon further. Read verses 44 through 50. Then turning towards the woman, he says to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss of greeting, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, even common olive oil. But she has anointed my feet with expensive perfume. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Man, amazing. So we've looked at the woman. We've looked at the Pharisee. Let me highlight some important things about our great and mighty Lord and Savior. The first thing is that we see that Jesus received her worship. When she came in to Simon's house, she began to worship Christ. Now this is an important scene because Simon, being a Pharisee, would understand that only God should be worshiped. The first commandment, Exodus 20 verse three, you shall have no other gods besides me. Also no idols. You are to only worship Jehovah, Yahweh. And yet, this woman worships Jesus and he takes it. And this scene is pointing and demonstrating that Jesus is making it known that he indeed is the Son of God. He is God Almighty. The second thing we see, that Christ is omniscient. He knew what Simon was thinking in his heart. Psalm 44, verse 21, for God knows the secrets of the heart, and Jesus knew Simon's heart. He knows your heart. He knows my heart. He knows our secret sins. He knows 
the things that weigh us down. He knows everything about us internally as well as everything that we have ever done and will do. Jesus knows us intimately. He knows his creation. Jesus is omniscient. The third thing we see, and this is so great, Jesus defends this woman. Oh, this wicked, unrighteous, undeserving woman. And he defends her before the Pharisee. David, Jesus' great-great-great-grandfather, said in 2 Samuel 22, 3 and 4, he cries out and he says, My God, my rock, my shield, my stronghold, my fortress, and my Savior. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing for this woman. He is her shield. He is her stronghold. She's now under his wings, under his protection. When you become saved and you've had your heart transformed, you are now on the Lord's side. He is now your advocate. You now have somebody who represents you before God Almighty and before hell and his angels, and he is your active lawyer based on the work that he did for you on the cross and his sinless life and his resurrection. And now he's your advocate. As children, he defends us. 1 John 2, 1, for my little children, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He defends her. In verse 4, he publicly forgives her. I love this. He publicly forgives her. Look at verse 48. And Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Why is this so important? Again, Jesus is claiming to be God but he is assuring her. He's letting her know before the eyes and ears of all the people that are around that yes, this woman was a wicked woman. Yes, she deserved hell, but she is now forgiven. And I am publicly letting everybody know that she is now clean and washed, made clean. Isn't that good? On what grounds can Jesus offer this? How can he offer her forgiveness? How can he say that? Well, we've already seen he's clearly proclaiming to be God. He is the Son of God. He is deity. Only God can forgive sins. But God just doesn't let your sins go scot-free. No, because he's just. Those sins have to be paid for. His righteousness demands it. So on what grounds? The grounds is that she is going to have a Savior. This Savior, Jesus Christ, is going to go to the cross and die for her. That's how she's going to be forgiven. Ultimately, it's because Jesus, in his love, is going to die for her. Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, is going to take on himself her sin. And she's going to receive his righteousness. He's going to bear the eternal weight of judgment that she deserved, and he's going to bear it on the cross. And then she's going to, he's going to rise from the dead. And that's what you can possess and have as well if you turn from your sins and receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. So on what grounds? His holy life, his death, and his resurrection. And then the question has to come forth, why? Why would he do this for this woman? Why would he do this for you and for me? It's love. It is his love. For God so loved the prostitute that he gave his only begotten son 
that if the prostitute believes in him, she will have everlasting life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe would have everlasting life. Romans 5 verse 8, for God demonstrated his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus loved her much. Jesus loved her greatly to the degree that he gave up his life or would give up his life for her and will. John 15, 13, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down on his life for his friends. And Jesus was saying that to his disciples. I love you and I'm gonna lay my life down for you. There's no greater love. So great love was poured out to this sinful woman. And great love was her response back to Jesus. That's how it works. She loved greatly because she had been loved greatly by her Savior. If your love is small today for the Lord and for others, then you need to go back to the fountain of love. You need to go to the fountainhead of love where love flows greatly. And you know what the fountainhead of love is? It is the cross of Jesus Christ. You need to go back to the cross minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day, constantly going to the foot of the cross and cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, my heart is hard. My heart is cold. My love for you is cold. Lord Jesus, help me remember. Help me understand what you did for me on the cross. And I believe when you go there, and the way you go there is through the word, through discipleship, through sweet fellowship in the church, but you go to Jesus, you go to his cross, and the cross will quicken your heart. It will strengthen your heart. It will warm your heart if it's cold. It will build, it will grow, it will stir up, and it will fill your heart with forgiving love. It will. And you go to him and you cry out, say, Lord, help me love you. Help me remember what you did for me. Lord, remind me of my depravity and my utter lostness. And then show me your forgiveness again and the depths of your forgiveness. Great hymn. There is a fountain, William Cooper, 1772. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath the flood, lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see the fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved and saved to sin no more. Verse 4, ever since by faith I saw the stream, the stream of blood, thy flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. That's what I want to be my theme. I want it to be the work of Jesus Christ. I want it to be that he died for me. And I want to live in such a way that I proclaim that good news. Christ did this. He poured out his blood for us so that we sinners who are filthy and vile could be made new and made right. 
And when this poor, lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave, then in a nobler, sweeter song, I'll sing the power to save. That is all because of the Lord Jesus Christ and His forgiveness. And the fifth thing that we see, and I love this as well, Jesus assures her. He's so loving and so powerful and so gracious and so forgiving that He assures this woman live in the moment. The people were there, verse 49, and they said, who is this who even forgives sins? Right? Jesus is proclaiming to forgive sins, but then He turns to the woman and He says, and He said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Oh, guys. When the Lord Jesus Christ says, go in peace, she went in peace. She went understanding that she has been made new. And you and I have that same peace when the King of Kings says, peace unto you, John Stead, not because of what you've done, but because of the work I did on your behalf, you can go in peace. You can go knowing that you are forgiven. And that's what he does. He forgives her. Two last very important points with this text, and we've got to get this right as it relates to faith. So please listen. If I put some of you to sleep, I apologize. Um, Alistair Begg tells the story of a, a dad and a wee lad sitting in the front pew, and this preacher's preaching his heart out, and the dad falls asleep. And he stops his sermon and he says to the boy, lad, wake up your father. And the boy looks back at him and says, you waken him, you put him to sleep. <laughs> so wake up. This is so important. This, this, this part, oh, really good. You might want to write this down. It wasn't the acts of love that saved her, this woman but it was the object of her love that saved her. It wasn't the acts of love that saved her, it was the object of her love that saved her. It wasn't her bold and risky approach. It wasn't her pouring out of tears. It wasn't the washing of Jesus' feet with her hair. It wasn't the anointing of costly perfume. It wasn't her act of worship that saved her but it was whom she worshiped. It was whom she anointed. It was whom she washed with her hair. It was whom she poured out her tears. It was whom she boldly approached. It was the object of her faith, the object of her love. It was Jesus Christ who saved her. Spurgeon says this, it's not great faith, but true faith that saves. And the salvation lies not in the faith, but in the Christ in whom the faith trusts. It is not the measure of faith, but the sincerity of faith, which is the point to be considered. Again, the salvation lies not in her faith, or in the faith, faith in and of itself, but in the Christ in whom her faith trusts. It was the person and work of Christ. That's what saved her, it was Jesus. And all of these things were a response to the forgiveness that God poured out. 
And here's the second key point. Her faith, her love displayed the depth of her love for Jesus. Now, this is important. Her faith and her love was put on display, and it showed her understanding of the love of Christ, and it demonstrated her love back to Christ. Her acts of love and worship demonstrated that she loved Jesus much. She understood her depravity. She knew her sins were many. She understood the risks of God's love and the overflowing abundance of God's grace. She wasn't forgiven because she loved much. Rather, she loved much because she was forgiven much. If you walk out of here with that, then I've done my job. She wasn't forgiven because she loved much. Rather, she loved much because she had been forgiven much. Now, my prayer for you and for me is that I would love Jesus much, that I would love Christ much, that in my home, I would be gracious and loving and respectful to my wife because Jesus had forgiven me of my sins and I know the creator of the very woman that I'm living with, who's my wife, and I want to treat her rightly because God has displayed and poured out his love in my heart. I want to teach my kids and love my kids the way Christ has loved me. I want to show mercy and grace. I don't want to just give law, law, law. Law is important because the purpose of the law is to point your kids to the fact that they can't keep the law and they desperately need a Savior, Jesus Christ. For the law is a tutor. But in your parenting, if all you do is law, 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 and forget mercy and grace, then you have done a disservice. You have aligned yourself with Simon. There has to be grace and mercy woven into your parenting. Yes, we discipline. Yes, we demonstrate and teach law. But we teach our kids ultimately that they can't keep the law and they desperately need Christ. I want to live in my community in such a way that I represent the love of Christ, that I put on display, the love that God has given me. I need to get that to people that I'm rubbing shoulders with that are far from God, who don't know Jesus Christ. And the love of God, which has been poured out in my heart, compels me to tell others about Jesus Christ. And we need to be a church that puts Christ on display, not to earn His favor, but to show the world that we've been forgiven, we've been loved much, and therefore we tell others of the Lord Jesus Christ and how amazing He is, that you can have forgiveness, that you can be washed clean, that no matter what you've done in your life, it can all be removed in the sense that God remembers it no more. You can be forgiven of all those debts and then receive the loving righteousness and forgiveness of God. And so the call today is to look to Christ No matter if you're a believer, you need to look to Christ all throughout the day and get back to the foot of the cross and love His Word and spend time with Him and pray that He warms your heart and softens your heart. And if you're not a believer today, the call to you is to look to Jesus, to look away from yourself, look to Him, His perfect life, His death, and His resurrection. Look to Christ and His amazing grace 
and you will love much. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that you have loved us greatly in the sending of your Son. Thank you that he willingly went to the cross and had the church in mind. Not only the church, but each individual. That you have specifically displayed your love on the cross and given that love to us individually. Each one of us that's in this room that is saved, we have been loved personally by you, and we are loved, and we will be for all eternity. And you have collectively brought together sinners, the vilest of the vile, and brought them into your family, washed them, and made them your children. Thank you that you have done that for us. Thank you for your amazing grace towards us. Thank you that you just favored us. You just chose in your agape love to love us in that way, to make us your children. I praise you and thank you for your grace and your mercy. Amen.